Welcome everyone to the Mentium Matters podcast, where we talk about leadership, life, and the transformative power of mentoring. I'm Megan Cummings-Kruger, and for this season, we are aligning our podcast with the monthly topics of Mentium's business education webinars. This month, our focus is on courageous conversations, and as you will hear, that has great relevance to today's guest. So I'd like to introduce you all to Emily Kosky, who is Senior Vice President and the Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Segment Strategy Lead at US Bank. Emily and her team use data to develop segment specific strategies and implement initiatives that support diverse employees in their careers, including women, professionals of color, employees with disability, active military veteran employees, as well as the LGBTQ community. Now, as is common with our mentors, Emily brings a multitude of talents to the conversation. Emily holds a master's in voice performance and a bachelor's of fine arts in musical theater. So in addition to her role at US Bank, she also works as a part-time church music director and voice and piano teacher. And she shared that she leverages her performance and teaching skills to infuse energy and creativity at her work. Emily and her husband and their four children, ages nine and under, live in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome, Emily. I'm tired just going through that that bio. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Well, first off, thank you so much for taking the time today to speak with us because, of course, you have a wealth of experience in areas that are really relevant for so many of us today. Now, to start with, I know that U.S. Bank has really been focused on supporting DE&I efforts and that you've been able, therefore, to be proactive and innovative in your approach to the programs, your communications, et cetera. So I'd love to start out by just hearing, you know, what has been effective for you? Have you seen many changes over your seven years in this area? Can you share some examples for us? Yeah, so I like to say I've been part of all the different DEI iterations at the bank. I don't know if that's for sure true, because I'm sure obviously this work has been going on for probably decades now. But I like to say I started at DEI 1.0 back probably in about 2013-2014. And it has been fascinating to see the changes over that time. So one of the things that we do when we talk about our work is we reference the Burzen model. Have you ever heard of this? I've heard of it, but I'm not clear on it. So, so it, it actually started out as a learning organizational maturity model, but there are DEI versions of this. So, so level one is compliance. It's like your baseline. And I feel like that's where DEI 0.2 was, at least at the bank, which was, you know, we do it because we have to, because the government tells us we have to. And that's a great place to start. You have to start there. Level two is programmatic. So that's things like building on our BRGs. And, you know, that's really when my, when I really started joining in the team, when we got to that level two around 2015, we did DEI road shows, you know, leader training. Level three is where we get to have some fun. Level three is where leaders really own DEI. So that's things like making sure that they have scorecards, that they have access to data, that it's embedded in our people leader goal, which it is now. I mean, it is expected. That's how leaders lead with inclusion. And then level four is even more fun. And that's where everybody owns DEI. So that's where it's just how we do business. We don't even have to think, is there a DEI component to this? We're just thinking inclusively and behaving with belonging 
in everything we do. So, so that's the maturity model we follow. And it's been such an honor to be with the bank in this capacity as we've gone from level one to level two, level three. And now in some pockets of the organization, we're even approaching level four. So that's been a lot of fun to, to witness and to be a part of. Absolutely. And so do any examples come to mind for you of, you know, programs that were successful now that might've been a little more challenging seven years ago? Oh, yes. (laughs) So (laughs) one example that I'd love to share, this was maybe DEI L2. So level two going into level three. So we were in that programmatic stage where we were doing road shows, but we were really trying to help people go into the next level, which is really leaders taking ownership of DEI. And so the head of DEI at the time, who actually is my manager now, so he was doing a roadshow, going out and speaking to, you know, big groups of leaders, probably more employees too, but certainly many leaders were there. And he was talking about DEI and the business case and, you know, groups that have been underrepresented. That's where we're going to focus. And during the Q&A portion, we had a leader, white male leader, And he basically raised his hand and asked the question, right? That we're all thinking, what about the white straight men? That wasn't exactly his question, but it was something like that. And the DEI leader got off of the chair, off the stage, went down and hugged him. (laughs) Which probably was not the answer or the reaction this brave soul was expecting. But what the first thing that the DEI leader said was, thank you. Thank you for asking the question. Thank you for being brave, because that's what this work is all about. It's about challenging each other. It's about asking the questions that we're all thinking. And when I say we all, that, you know, that changes based on the group that we're thinking about. But in that situation, probably a lot of leaders were thinking of that same question. And if we don't at least get it out in the open, we're never going to make progress. So that's one of those, one of those kind of defining moments, I'll say. And I'm sure there are many of those moments that had to happen. That was just one in-person event, but that have really changed the way that we, I believe that our culture has evolved. Our whole U.S. bank culture, not just DEI, but the workplace culture is much more, let's work through it. Let's have the challenging interactions. Let's ask the tough questions and then let's deal with it. So that's one of those examples of, I don't even know, maybe a few years before that, if that leader would have even asked that question. Now, if somebody asks that question, I don't know that they would get a hug and a thank you. Maybe they would. Uh, (laughs) But I feel like in a lot of places, we've even evolved beyond that. I just love that story. Thank you so much for sharing that. I love that immediate positive feedback to that employee who did have that courageous bravery to ask mm-hmm. the question that people were thinking. And I imagine that had a wonderful result for the rest of the audience as well. They always say it's really that second person that starts the tipping point. So you've got that brave first soul. And I imagine mm-hmm. what a difference that made. All right, so now that mm-hmm. brings me, that's a perfect segue into what is our topic on our business education webinar this month, and that is the courageous conversation. So of course, doing DEI work, it entails many courageous conversations at many levels, whether it is Mm -hmm. dealing with peers, direct reports, dealing with executives. What have been some experiences for you around courageous conversations? 
Love the topic. I was so excited to hear that was your topic this month for the business education webinars. And I actually was fortunate enough to have some time to go back and listen to some of last season's episodes. And this actually came up in, in at least one, maybe even more. And there's so many different ways to think about courageous conversation. So the first thing I want to do is level set on when we say courageous conversation, maybe I'll say what I think. I'd love to hear what you think. And I'm sure there are many definitions, but the way that I think of a courageous conversation is basically when we decide anybody, whether it's an individual or a company or a team decide to discuss something that we just rather avoid. And I think there's an added layer that now when we say courageous conversations, I feel like there's an expectation that it's maybe diversity, equity, and inclusion focused, although not always. It can be, you know, we're having a tough situation with an employee and we have to address that. But that's how I define it. Is that what you think of at Mentium or what you've been hearing? Yeah, absolutely. I would say both of those are true. I think at its core, it absolutely is conversations that take courage, conversations that are authentic, and you're being vulnerable, definitely. And I would agree in organizations right now, probably one of the primary topics that has taken a lot of courage and has been occurring has been around DEI. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, okay. So we're on the same page with that, (laughs) which is great, (laughs) but you know, there, I think of it in a few different buckets. So you have your one-on-one courageous conversations, and then you have, you know, a little bit broader. So maybe a team conversation, you know, we're bringing it to a team meeting, maybe that's five, 10 people. And then we have what I call our large scale courageous conversations. And one thing I loved, so Toya Workheiser last season, I believe it was episode 24. I think it was a two-parter, but in episode 24, she actually gave some really um, vulnerable examples of when she had those one-on-one interactions. Yes. So I don't know if you remember that episode. Oh, very Uh, well. I was interviewing her and I remember it. It was, yeah, it was, I mean, we've had so many great podcasts, but I absolutely remember that podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah. Talk about, you know, having courage, you know, black women in corporate America and she was on a call with a vendor. So even an external person and that person used the term straight off the plantation, which it's a little (laughs) shocking, right? I don't, I can't even believe I just said it out loud on a podcast that's going to be recorded, but this is something that she came across and said, you know what? no, (laughs) we're going to have to have this conversation. And she took the courage to one-on-one later have, you know, she went through a whole list. It sounds like she has just a science to it of how she goes about courageous conversations. And it turned out to be a really positive experience. So when, if you want to hear all about one-on-one conversations, I highly recommend that episode with Toya. That was really, that was really great. My team, because I'm on this, you know, enterprise DEI team, certainly we get involved with one-on-one and, you know, small team conversations, but where my team plays a lot is the large scale. We're an enterprise group. That's where we play. And that's where we have the biggest impact from our organizational position. So what I'll say is that pre-2020, I would say that courageous conversations certainly were happening, but I don't know that the term was used as widely or was understood as widely as it is today. I certainly have been using it a lot more. So in the DEI space, it's gained a lot of traction and popularity. But interestingly, at the very beginning of 2020, before any of this stuff with COVID and racial justice really exploded, we were doing a courageous conversation. So in 2019, we started our Women's Advancement Initiative. 
we launched this enterprise-wide initiative. We were going to increase the number of women in senior leadership. And we, you know, had this, just this huge plan. We're not just going to focus on the women. We're also going to focus on the role the manager plays and bias and the system. And this is something we're still working on today. So it was a big darn deal. It was a lot of momentum launching that in 2019. In doing that, we also had a lot of honest questions come in that first year. So what are we doing about the gender pay gap or pay equity? What about women of color? Are we talking about women of color specifically? Not yet. Like we should probably be doing that. How are men going to get involved in this? I'm getting a lot of pushback from men. What are you doing about that? We even had the question, you know, isn't that for men and women, are we swinging the pendulum too far the other way? You know, we're focusing on women. What about everybody else? And one thing you'll get to know about me, Megan, if you don't already, is I like to keep it real. So, <laughs> so for their one year anniversary, what we said is, you know what, we're going to put it all out on the table. We've had a whole year of this and we are going to have this honest, authentic, challenging conversation. And you know what, we're going to do it in front of the whole company. I don't even know if I would call it a courageous conversation, but that's at that point, that's what we did. We said, we're going to have an honest, authentic conversation. And I give so much credit to our leaders who said, yep, they put themselves, you know, they were sitting on a panel in person in Minneapolis in a convention center, which sounds crazy. Now we had C-suite men and women. We had our CEO. We had a, a leader fly in from Europe. We had great representation, a lot of diversity, very senior leaders who were in front of about a thousand people answering these really tough questions. And what I loved about it is they were really authentic responses. Things like, I don't know. <laughs> That's a good point. I had never thought of it that way before. Some really raw responses, like to the question, is the pendulum swinging too far the other way? One of our leaders said something to the effect of, I'm looking at the representation data and I'll let you know when we've swung too far the other way, but we're not even close. You know, that one got applause, right? But it was a real candid conversation in a way that we had never seen before on a large scale at the company. Yeah. Really positive feedback. In fact, employees said more, we could have gone farther. We could have spent more time. So it was a good test run. And then literally the next week, the entire world shut down. So a month or two after that, George Floyd was killed in our headquarters market in Minneapolis. And then a few months after that, it was back to school time. And our moms, largely moms, right? Not always, but largely the women in our organization were trying to figure out how am I going to balance you know, teaching my kids at home and doing work. And then I feel like I can't you know, have the kids in the background because people will think I'm not committed to my job. We had a lot of opportunities <laughs> to... <laughs> to test out what we had just piloted earlier that year. And, and that really was the baptism by fire, if you will, on making this large scale courageous conversation format work. Absolutely. I mean, I would imagine you really inadvertently without knowing what was coming, you actually planted the seed, you proactively were doing it. And then when you, and you know, and, and I imagine that had to make a difference when, you know, leaders are authentically honestly and vulnerably answering questions that has a tremendous impact on culture, I would imagine. You know, it's so funny you said that, the impact on the culture, because just before this, I was talking to a woman who has, in our 
consumer banking division. She's been, you know, at the bank for more than 10 years. She's been doing a lot of work in and around DEI. And she actually specifically said, you know, we saw Andy, who's our CEO, get on a call, a courageous conversation after George Floyd was killed with other executives. And again, we heard a lot of those answers, which is, I don't know. I mean, do you hear leaders say, I don't know? Not very often, but that's what the answer is. Like, Sometimes that's the answer is I don't need you to solve. I just need you to listen. And those leaders demonstrated that. And not even joking, the call right before this one, she said, unprompted, I swear unprompted. She said, I saw Andy and our leaders do that. And I thought, well, they opened the door and here I go. And she started, (laughs) that was the impetus for her to start pushing people in a respectful way, obviously, but pushing people, challenging people. I brought com- courageous conversations to my team. I started having one-on-one courageous conversations because I saw it happening at the top. And if they can do it, certainly I'm allowed to do it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that message from the top, I think a lot of times senior leaders don't recognize just how powerful their role modeling can be. And it's incredibly powerful. We actually did a back to school session. So we had two of our women C-suite leaders. They're actually the co-executive sponsors of our women's BRG. And we did, we talked a lot about the resources. At that point, we were trying to change our policies, just make sure that everyone had as much help as they could going into this back to school season. And it ended up being just a cathartic experience for everyone to hear that they weren't alone and to hear it from our, again, our most senior women telling stories about, you know, the managing committee, they were, you know, at the beginning of COVID and their roots are grown out two inches and the men haven't shaved for, you know, three or four days. And both of them got so much feedback afterwards, positive feedback, you know, people saying I was crying because I wasn't alone and I thought I was alone. And so much positive feedback and they just, they had no idea that them just telling real stories would have that impact on the women at the bank. And you know, this is what we hear all the time, particularly in the last couple of years where we're all dealing with so much for many different reasons. We hear from mentees all the time that they are feeling overwhelmed. And again, if they're solidly virtual, mostly virtual, maybe the hybrid starting now, you're even more isolated and you're even more, it's the human nature to think it's just me. And, you know, I always loved, I think it was Margaret Mead, the anthropologist always said, you know what? The most important thing that everyone needs to know is that they're not alone. I mean, that is the core. That's absolutely what we see in mentoring. And it's, it's, you know, so reflected in what your leaders were doing and the response to that. And it also humanizes them. And again, leaders tend to be a very modest group. So sometimes they're just not realizing what a difference they can make. So as we've been talking about already, you know, for a variety of reasons, courageous conversations has become such a topic of interest for our mentees, you know, especially in light of the hybrid virtual world we're all living in. So what best practices have you developed around ensuring that courageous conversations actually occur? It's been a huge part of our work on the DEI team. Specifically, I lead our segment-specific strategies. And you hear, like I shared, from women or from our Black employees or people with disabilities, you know, their accessibility implications when you're going to work from home or downtown to work or what have you. So so we've been hearing from our employees. And on the flip side of that, we've also just been hearing from managers in general, like, okay, I get it. I see that leaders are having these conversations. I know that I want to do it too, but how, (laughs) right? So a couple things. 
One is that we have been building infrastructure around the concept of courageous conversations. For example, providing ground rules. That was one of the first things we did. And even still, no matter what the topic is or the angle is, if I'm talking anything DEI, I usually pull out my courageous conversation rules because it level sets. And the things I, you know, engage in dialogue, not debate, be okay with discomfort, assuming positive intent, be willing to admit mistakes. And that helps me to share. If you're a little uncomfortable, good. That's what we're trying to do here is learn and grow. And you have to grow from a place of discomfort. So that's the first thing we do. We got out these courageous conversation ground rules to at least level set with everyone. We also created toolkits. So we worked with an external vendor to put together. I mean, these are very structured, unconscious bias or allyship. And there's like a facilitator guide and the, you know, the PDF of what the learners will, the learning objectives. So that's a different style that some people gravitate to. They really want the facilitator guide if they're going to engage with this. And that's great. And then the other thing that's more recent is we've been working with some folks in HR to develop case studies. So actual situations that, that we hear and see happening at the company, because again, sometimes people might not be willing to say, this is something that I see, I need to address it, but they might be more willing to engage if it's a hypothetical situation that we can work through together. So those are a few resources that we've built to have a lot of different engagement points so people can, can engage where they feel most comfortable. And then, so not only the resources, but the platforms. So I already talked quite a bit about the large scale company-wide. Those are, well, those are all virtual. I can't think of one we've done in person. That's been, except for that first one I said before COVID that we've done in person, but we also have support circles. So we've had these for years, but they've really taken off things like invisible disabilities or LGBTQ support or women in the workplace. And Sometimes the topics lend themselves to different formats. So I'll give you an example. So Roe versus Wade is overturned. Oh my gosh, was that just a couple months ago? Feels like a lifetime ago. So, okay. <laughs> so that was overturned. I am the women's segment lead, right? So there were a lot of feelings, a lot of passion, a lot of requests for support. By this time, people are saying, you know, when's the com courageous conversation? Because we've set that precedent in a really good way. People expect us to address these issues head on. And what we decided is this topic in particular is very polarizing. There are a lot of feelings very strongly on both sides, all sides, I'll say, I'm sure there are not just two sides to anything, but we didn't say we're not gonna talk about it. We're still gonna talk about it. We're still gonna give people an opportunity to express you know, their need for support, but we're gonna do it in our support circle framework. We have a workplace wellness for women support circle. That's where we're gonna talk about it. We'll bring it up. Because if we don't bring it up, it's going to come up anyway. It's called Workplace Wellness for Women, right? And, and we set it up, We again, a version of those courageous conversation ground rules. And we said, look, we're going to frame this and say that this is a support circle. We are here to support each other. We're not here to judge each other. We're not here to start an argument. But we are here to say, hey, I'm affected right now. Here's what's going on with me. And this is a safe space. And so we were still able to have the conversation. It was just a slightly different format, but it's because we already had the platform built that we could very easily, I mean, that came, you know, real quick. You have to pivot on something like that. You can't build a platform and say, 
<laughs> you know, in a day and address yeah. those situations. So that was a really cool way that we were still able to have the conversation, but the format just couldn't be that large scale. That would not have been productive. This was productive. Yeah. I just, you know, first off the structure, all the tools, the, the thought that went behind that, we know from Mentium that structure makes a huge difference, especially in the beginning when you are getting, as you say, you know, uncomfortable, whenever we're stretching, <laughs> that's not a comfortable position. So whenever we're stretching ourselves with learning and new behaviors, it's always going to be uncomfortable and structure um, tools, literally direction for how to, you know, I'm sure all of your researchers already know this, but when you're making change happen, that is just so pivotal. But I also really appreciate the recognition that you all have about, you know, there's a saying we use in the mentoring world that oftentimes a mentee needs to let it out before they will let you in. So even though, you know, may, you know, cause a lot of times our mentors really seasoned, they know where it's going. They've had the experience, you know, doesn't matter. But being able to have that voice, being able to be seen, knowing that you're not alone, that sounds to me like you've really been touching on a lot of these points. I, I've never heard that before, but I love it because it, especially for people who are struggling, whether it's they're struggling because they think, you know, DEI doesn't belong in the workplace or they're struggling because we're not going far enough, fast enough, and we're not supporting them the way that, you know, they believe a company should support their employees, regardless of where you are on anywhere in that spectrum. I love that saying it, it completely applies. I have to let, give them the safe space to just give it, give, like, I'm not going to be hurt. Share it, give it all to me. <laughs> and then I'll say, thank you. And I'm going to acknowledge, I've heard this before. You're not the only person who feels this way. I mean, I, you know, acknowledge it, right? Whatever makes sense in that situation. And then we can talk about, then we can maybe have a courageous conversation. Then I can give some reasons about, hey, did you ever think that this might help your business? You know, let me tell you about population growth and our retail footprint. It's 97% multicultural. You know, that does that change how you might think about this? You know, and it's not in a mean way. It's like, let's talk about it and see if we can come to a different understanding. But the first step is they have to feel safe like that guy at the, in the beginning to say, what about the straight white men? And then get a hug. Like that's what we're trying to do is give a bunch of people virtual hugs, regardless yeah. of where, what the feedback is that we're getting. Yeah. And then they're in a position, they're better able to perhaps reframe, you know, change that mm -hmm. perspective and hear that. Absolutely. You know, it occurs to me, you know, with the courageous conversations world, but also the DEI world, you know, there's been so much research over the last 10 years in particular about how we used to have those annual reviews and they were not effective. And mm -hmm. more and more we're understanding first it was, well, maybe we need a quarterly review. Well, maybe we need a monthly review. The reality is it needs to be most effectively. It needs to be in the moment. Not always, not in all cases, but the more close to the moment, if not the moment, much more relevant, much more learning goes on. And it strikes me when you're able to have that courageous conversation in the moment, such as when Toya had that example in the other podcast, you know, they really dovetail. These two areas really align strongly. And, you know, speaking, this is me with my manager hat on, it makes everything easier if you go through the hard work of getting comfortable with the discomfort, you hear that a lot, but it really is true. Yeah. It's so much easier when you get to the year end performance reviews that you still have to type up and you're like blocking three days in December just to get through your performance review write-ups. And it helps a lot, not only the employees, like you said, but you as a manager, you get really good. You get really good at being quick to the point 
always with that assumed positive intent and I'm here to help you get better. And that makes it feel like you need a little less courage to have the courageous conversation if you do them quickly and in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And again, those courageous conversation rules, they're a great way to pause and reset. And our current pace of life, (laughs) just pausing is really a relevant experience and then being able to reset and look at things with those rules, which everyone would agree with. What would you say, you know, as you think about your success you've had in this area, what do you feel are some of your habits or what do you think has allowed you to have the success you've had in kind of a challenging area? So this is part habit and part just my personality, but nonetheless, it's helpful. And that is that I take almost nothing personally. Like I was actually preparing for this and I thought, one was like, let me think of an example of something I took personally. And I could not think of one because whether it's at work or at home, I've, I've developed thick skin. And part of that is, you know, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, my performance background and you really, if you're going to be a performer in front of a bunch of people, especially when you're preparing to be in a show or whatever, and people are critiquing you constantly, you just, you get thick skin. You say, they're just trying to make me better. And no matter which way you slice it, it's a controversial space. And I get a lot of feedback and I've heard, you know, feedback is a gift. One of my leaders <laughs> several years ago told me a feedback is a gift. And I really do believe that I having that thick skin and taking almost nothing personally, you know, professionally, I'm able to take criticism and improve, right? I use it to improve. I always try to use it to improve. And personally, I mean, I've got a busy life. Like I, you know, I got four kids, I got two jobs. I got a big job at the bank here. I don't have time to, in my mind, you know, like I used to do, I like, I, that's the habit part. I used to just rehash oh, what I should have said this, or I, I can't believe they said that, or what did they mean by this? I just don't have time for it. And so it's actually freed me up to be in a more productive energy flow, as opposed to when you do take things a little personally and you take it back a little bit, it, it sometimes can rob you of some really valuable energy. It's yeah, absolutely. And I'm impressed that you have reached that point. And again, some of this is how we're wired and some of this is habits and training. But you know, I don't know if you've ever read the four agreements, but they talk about four different Mm -hmm. things that are essential. And one is to take absolutely nothing personally. And that is challenging for almost all of us. But you're right, it's redirecting the energy. So I imagine that's been a tremendous gift in the work that you do. And I get a lot of practice. That's right. (laughs) All right. So then, you know, I'd like to end on just final question as far as what advice would you like to share to up and coming leaders? And this can come from you from any direction, but this is your time to collectively mentor anyone who's listening to this podcast. What would you like to share? I mentioned this earlier, but this is what I try to live by. Just be real. You might hear people say, you know, lead with authenticity or bring your full self to work. There are a bunch of different ways to say it, but the simplest way I've found is just be real. Whenever possible, strip away the corporate jargon. It's great. You know, I speak corporate too, (laughs) but I get a lot farther in what I'm trying to accomplish if I take away the fancy sounding words and I strip down the, the corporate, you know, the corporate slang, (laughs) and it may sound really obvious, like, oh, I can just be real. But I actually had two separate people in the last week who have thanked me for talking to them. And I'm not joking. They said like a real person. And I thought, well, how are, 
other people talking to <laughs> what else would they but i think what they meant is that they feel like they don't need to you know keep up airs they feel like they can take away a little bit of the mask that you feel especially in corporate america that you have to have a little bit of that that mask on and you know they feel like when i'm quote unquote real i'm you know and this is true i truly believe like i'm just a gal i'm on the dei team i'm you know a corporate leader i'm on the journey with everybody else i don't have it all figured out and i'll tell you i don't have it all figured out and again, a lot of that, some of that's my personality. Some of it is that I've had a lot of practice. Some of it, you know, is that I've made the decision that's how I'm going to be, but it can take a lot of courage and a lot of vulnerability. And frankly, a lot of risk for people at different stages of their career to, to take off that mask and just be really down to earth and real. But like I said, it's the best way that, and the quickest way I found to one, connect with people, gain trust, huge in any business that involves people, which is like every business and building relationships. And frankly, it, it just makes my job easier and more enjoyable. Absolutely. Wonderfully said. And you and I talked during our prep session, not surprisingly, we share a love for Brene Brown. And I know some of the listeners certainly already know about her, but the one thing I will recap, and if you haven't seen her TED Talk on the power of vulnerability, I highly recommend it. But basically, she did not want to have that be what was so important for any kind of leader is to have that ability to be vulnerable because she didn't like being vulnerable. And she said, I wanted to beat that back with my ruler because I didn't like that answer. But that is what she found with the research. And so, yeah, it's wonderful to hear you echoing that. Any final thoughts, Emily, before I finally let you go? I'm just so thankful for this opportunity. I, this is an unsolicited Mentium commercial break, I'll say, but I, you know, I was lucky enough to be a mentee and I, in my intake, I asked for, I had big ideas, right? I wanted a male leader because I led the women's initiative. So I wanted a male leader. I wanted someone in a business line role who was super senior, who was in the Twin Cities in person and Mentium through your amazing wizardry of your matching, found me someone who hit every single one of those and he was in a church music choir and I'm a church music director. So I thought, wow, okay, there's something special going on at this organization if they could find me this unicorn of a mentor and it made a big difference, that pairing. So just thank you for all the work that you all do at Mentium and it's been an honor. Oh, absolutely. Thanks so much, Emily. Just everything, the stories, but also your open vulnerability. This was a great conversation. It really rich in examples of how to approach what can be challenging topics. I also want to thank everyone listening to this Mentium Matters podcast. We have a number of other excellent guests like Emily lined up for the season. So I want to tell you to make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Next month, our topic will be around personal brand. And then for any additional resources, you can find show notes on the Mentium website. We look forward to having you join us next time. Thanks, everyone.